I say this off the beginning of the podcast, but I think it just bears repeating as I reflect on this episode. I am so incredibly amazed that people can have these traumatic upbringings that just can bring so much pain and and mental anguish and, and everything that they went through. And yet they can come out of it on the other side and turn it into this, this powerful motivation and drive to really make change on all these important issues that go on in our society. And and my guest uh, today absolutely did this. And we had a, a, a very powerful and, and at times heavy conversation about the things that he went through as he he grew up uh, and, and what would happen to him, um, the bullying uh, as he got older, coming to terms with his sexuality. And, and we get into all of that, but specifically, he's here to talk about uh, his project, which aims to and bullying, uh, essentially. Uh, he is a, a motivational speaker and goes across the world making these presentations. And uh, we we have a really great conversation here. And I think you're really going to take a lot away from it. Um, you can check out his website uh, and see some of his talks and his work. It's called bullyingendsheer.ca. The initiative and charity where you can donate is called Bullying Ends Here. So please give it up for my guest today, Tad Milmine. Take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. All right, there's a there's going to be a lot of stuff to get to, uh, but let me welcome my guest, Tad. It's it's a pleasure to meet you, my friend. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. You, you know, one of the things about talking to people on this podcast I've, I've found is it, it is so kind of sad and disheartening that there are so many stories of of kind of trauma and all these really hard things that people went through but then on the flip side it's how they turn these challenges and these things that happened to you into these really positive impactful projects and missions and you have a really important one and, and something I stand very strongly with uh, in regards to bullying. I want to kind of start off because I know there's a lot of pieces that probably led up to this, but we'll start off. Tell me a little bit about this, this project and its mission. Right. So my, my project that started out, well, it's, I, I didn't even know where it was going to go. It, it started uh, I guess about eight years ago, late uh, uh, 2011. Um, I remember I just finished working a shift of work um, with the RCMP in, in Surrey, BC at the time. And as I do, scrolling the headlines of the news and, and one headline that evening caught my attention and said, Ottawa teenager takes his own life because of severe bullying. And as I do, you know, reading through the story and and I remember something about that article that just, overall, it just, it triggered me. It brought back, uh, you know, a wave of emotions and memories from the past, uh, currents and, and uh, thinking of, of some of the individuals I've dealt with over the years, not just with policing, but just as a human being. And, and I read about, um, in that article, a, a young man, 15 years old, his name's Jamie Hubley, uh, relentlessly bullied for years at school. Uh, he was a figure skater and openly gay. 
uh, the kids honed in on this as the years went on and the bullying got worse. Uh, Jamie struggled with mental illness as a result. And at 15 years old, October 15th, 2011, Jamie took his own life. And as I was reading this article, although I've read, you know, tragically, many others previous to that, I've seen it in the line of work. Um, there was something about Jamie's story in that article that night that just ignited a fire in me in that moment that has never gone out. And that was the kind of a, an understanding that reading Jamie's story kind of had me understand that there are youth in schools right now that feel the exact same way that I felt many, many years ago. And I thought, you know, it's um, as weird as it may sound, I, I still, even as an adult, I guess I was just naive and thinking that it was only me and it still was only me. And to hear, you know, about Jamie and all these years later and thinking, you know what, I do have, um, I do have experience now. I, I, I have life experience. I have policing experience. I, I have the experiences of what I went through and how I've, I've worked to overcome that through speaking about mental illness and, and bullying and the abuse I experienced growing up. And I just thought that, why don't, why don't I try to do something? I had no idea what it was going to be. I just knew that I had something in me that I, I could share. So that's kind of that pivotal moment in my life. I, I remember I was paralyzed in bed. I was frozen. And, um, and that's a moment that, you know, like I said, uh, it's going on almost nine years later. It's, um, I can tell you about every moment, every minute of, of that experience. And, and I hope that never goes away. I want that fire to keep burning inside because for as long as the fire's there, the passion's there, the, the passion is there, which means the, the ability to help is there. Yeah. Bullying is one of those things that I think in a way it's, it's sort of like a rite of passage in a lot of ways when you're growing up, especially as a, a young male. Um, I, I, and not even to discredit, I know uh, young girls and women go through it as well, but you know, men particularly seem to always have to go through it. You know, there's hazing in sports, there there's conditioning and, and all these different things. You have experience now and you were saying you're a police officer. I remember listening to a, a piece on, I believe it was CBC and it was a person who's talking about bullying and how they were bullied and how there is no way that they could have dealt with it in today's age with social media, with digital, because the escape, you know, like the bullying was at school or wherever, but once you got home, you were at least home. But now like it's everywhere. Yeah. So I guess in your experience and now you're doing this nine years, hearing stories from probably so many kids, has it really like, has it been become more of a concern? Is it really something that has, has really kind of exponentially grown in these, in these last number of years? Yeah. And I think that's a great question because the fact is we're talking about it more and we're hearing the word bullying. Um, to be honest with you, I mean, bullying, it is just a word. Like at the end of the day, I cannot arrest anyone for bullying. There's, there's no such thing. And in, when it comes to uh, the court systems, we have to call the acts what it really is. And, and typically when, it's, when it falls under the, the umbrella of bullying, it's gonna be assault, um, threats, harassment, um, you know, that, that sort of thing. So, but I, I know why we call it bullying and, and it's just an easier word, but I think because we say it so often, um, it almost, you know, it dumbs it down, so to speak, if that makes any sense. It's, um, it softens what it is. You know, mm -hmm. when someone hears the word bullying, and then when they hear the word assault, it's, it's quite different in their mind. Yet, 
technically you're speaking of the same thing. So um, for the sake of, of convenience and ease, you know, I do say the word bullying, but um, I just want to be clear that, you know, especially to the viewers and, and I know you have a wide audience all around the world that, that it's um, these, these are the crimes that make up what we use the bullying for. So is it happening more? Is it, um, uh, is it getting worse? You know what, that's something that I, I can only go off what the experts say. And, and they say that overall, it isn't actually getting worse. Mm. It, um, I think it, it really does feel like it's getting worse. And it feels like it's getting worse to me too, because it's, it's getting more exposure. More people are reaching out, more people are speaking out, which makes it sound like, you know, we have uh, another epidemic on our hands. But the fact is, is it's, we're doing such a good job overall that people are speaking up and they are reaching out and they are, um, you know, starting. And the same can be said about mental illness and, and wellness and people reaching out that, that has it gotten worse? I, I don't know. The experts would have to say that. But the same can be said that because we are really encouraging people to speak up and speak out, it sounds like it's worse. But I really do think at the end of the day, it's just the fact that people are, are talking now. And, and that is such a good thing because we need somewhere to start. And that starting point is often through voices and through experiences and, um, and making, making sure that those voices are heard and those lived experiences are, are understood. Yeah, that, that one of the greatest, you know, I talked about social media and, and you know, maybe the rise of harassment or bullying and, and you just see it a lot more because it's omnipresent, but just the power it's given all of our voices and how we can share our experiences uh, from like a vast number of, different areas of life that at one, at one hand, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of diverse experiences, but then it also brings us together with that connection being like, oh no, I feel that way too. I mean, this is how exactly how I got involved with mental health speaking and advocacy. Yeah. I, I want to shift back to you. So putting this together, obviously somebody who, who puts together initiative like this more often than not has a very deep personal relationship or experience with with what they've put together so with bullying and, and mental illness and all these types of things let's start at the beginning of kind of your story and how this impacted your life growing up through you know elementary high school college yeah so i mean you know when, when i speak of creating bullying ends here the, it was created for two reasons or a combination of two reasons i guess and that is what we just spoke about previously about Jamie Hubley and his experiences and, and um, you know, how that's, that came to a sudden and, and absolute tragic heartbreaking end. But the other piece is my experiences. So when I was five years old, my, my parents got divorced. They, they were quite, um, oh, they were abusive to each other. So they made that adult decision, thank goodness, um, to go their separate ways. But there was a five-year-old boy in, involved and that was me. So they, they were able to, to basically come up with an understanding that I was to go with my father. My mom would be the one that would leave the house. Um, my, my dad was an alcoholic, um, but one of those very high functioning. So I know sometimes when we hear the word alcoholic, we, we can get a pretty negative belief or understanding through lived experiences in our minds. And you know, I just want to be clear that my dad was very caring, very loving, very kind. But the challenge was with that addiction was that if there was something going on in his life where he should have been talking or communicating or addressing those issues, 
he wasn't comfortable doing it. His, his kind of coping mechanism or escape was turning to the alcohol and kind of hoping that everything just went away somehow with time on its own. So it was around that, that same time with, with that said, that piece about the alcoholism for my father, that, that he met the new woman of his dreams. So he invited her to come and live in my house. But that, that woman that, that moved into my house, I knew even at five years old, she absolutely hated me. Um, and I know that because as time would go on, she would be very abusive verbally, physically, uh, emotionally, psychologically um, to me. And it got to the point that uh, probably by the time I was six years old, I was already locked in a basement. And I know that especially in today's now, now uh, of age, when we hear about being locked in a basement, uh, so many of us have finished basements and, you know, man caves and every other thing that we've heard. I just want to be very clear. That's not what I had. I, I had four cement walls. It was just a big open space, cement floor, uh, one light bulb in the ceiling that sometimes worked, but more often than not didn't. No heat, no air conditioning. Four windows in total, but one was permanently cemented over at the back of the house. And then the three other windows um, were either in the spring, the bushes were so big that you couldn't see out anyways, or they would be boarded up on the inside. So basically I just, I, I couldn't see what was going on outside. The windows were high up anyways, as I was, I was small at that age. So I had really no idea what was going on outdoors. And, and the rules for me to be down in that basement were, were very simple growing up. It was either I'm down there at all times by myself, or I'm at school sitting at a desk in a classroom. But the thing was, is, is not being taught how to communicate with others, how to handle emotions. And, and obviously I've got a lot that's at a young age that's growing inside of me, whether it's the divorce, the alcoholism, the help being locked in a basement. Um, I didn't have a way or know of a way to, to work through that. So I became exceptionally introverted and I held everything in to the point that basically if, if anyone called me a bad name or looked at me the wrong way, or I was just having a bad moment, I would always very visibly cry. And the kids at school, unfortunately, they loved it. They, they thought it was funny. And, and of course, this is all starting at a young age. So it starts small. But if something isn't addressed, it manifests over time to become something much, much bigger. And that's exactly what happened to me. Um, by the time I was in, in junior high, that's when bullying went from, from verbal. So, you know, the name calling and and pushing or tripping to junior high was when the tripping, the hip check into the locker, the push down the stairs would become more, um, uh, more regular, almost daily. Um, very tough to, to say someone did it intentionally, but because I'm experiencing it and it's happening every day, I knew it was intentional, but looking back, like, how would you even prove it? It's, um, uh, you know, and then by the time I got to high school, again, holding everything in, not speaking about it, crying all the time, high school was was by far the worst. And, and everything had manifested to the point that now the, the assaults were that much worse. So I was being chased home, I was being physically beat up, I was, uh, um, you know, being spit on my hair pulled out, you name it, it's, it happened. And again, continuing to hold it in, not saying anything, not speaking out truly, 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 believing this is just me and no one's going to understand. No one can fix it because it's just going to make it worse. The adults, they don't know it's, it's just me and they've all lived perfect lives. And, and um, I truly believed it. I, I believed it essentially right up until I read about Jamie. I, I really believed it because I hadn't put much more thought into it because basically the bullying once I left high school ended, it's um, 
it's it ended just because you're not at school you're not around those same people you can you can choose who you're hanging around with and what sort of you know moods and and um you know uh, uh, happiness or negativity positivity that that you allow in your life and and it's uh it kind of just dissipated but i guess i missed a, a key point there it was when i was 17 years old is is when i ran away from home i i escaped mm. um I, I went to the government is how I got help. I, I was um, uh, taken under the, at the time it was called student welfare, put under their umbrella. I was provided um, an apartment that they took care of, the utilities they took care of, some money for, for food and essentials. But I really had to build my life. I had to build Tath and, and, um, and that, that's where it started. I just, I, I started building myself, but the one thing I forgot all along the way was to take care of myself. Um, I always looked at other people and thought, you know what? Wow, look at how look at how much they're loved. Look at how popular they are. I want to be that person. And without taking a step back and realizing, but is that really who I am? Is that really who I want to be? Is is there moments of of when you look at these these people and you think they're so popular and so famous? Do they really have the perfect life? It's um, as a grown-up, I know the answer to that is is not necessarily, but at the time it was just so so much loss and confusion. So, yeah, I, I really had to start building, and and that's what I did. Yeah, as young people, especially, we were very disillusioned on the actual realities of when you're looking at you know uh, celebrities or musicians, the even people in your own life in some way, the the CEOs that yeah, they, they give the illusion of living this, this perfect life. And, and, you know, even I'm not that old. I I came forward with my mental illness story in 2015. And even at that time, the one was, it was starting, it was starting to get momentum, but even talking about mental illness, feelings, all that stuff, that wasn't even a thing. And that's, you know, six years ago, you know, I'm not trying to call you old by any means, but uh, you know, going back to your time, like there, there was probably nobody at, at, at any point really talking about this there was no conversation in the media so you know it's only understandable like how else are you supposed to know right um and that's where the talking about it is having positive effects so obviously i now know as an adult when i was growing up mental illness was a thing people were struggling with it it was it was around me but because of the lack of conversations nobody nobody knew that so everyone uh speaking from experience everyone felt alone Mm -hmm. and 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 i think that's where we're in a really good place or at least a much better place where we are having those conversations and and i think the the most important part of the conversations is that they keep going it's not just a hashtag day it's not just a one day out of the year it's great don't get me wrong i mean we need every little start stepping stone and starting point as we can get but if we don't keep it going for the other 364 days a year it it that day didn't do what it was meant to do. Mm-hmm. We, we need to keep talking. One hundred percent. When you so you're you're talking, you never came forward really, or 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 like we were just t- talking about how important it is to to talk about it. But you know, as a as a young child, as someone like going through all these very kind of traumatic events, obviously, you, you know, you would expect some kind of like effects. Did anyone ever? a teacher, a parent, anyone ever like check in on you and like kind of like recognize like maybe it was showing up in your schoolwork or, 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 you know, like, did anyone ever like reach out to you 
and try to provide assistance? And yeah, I think that that's a great question. Something I've thought of a lot over the years, because one of the things I have been able to do with, with my charity and doing the presentations is I've actually spoken at my high school many, many times since, um, you know, since creating it. And there are still some, some faculty there that, in fact, my guidance counselor from back then is still there. And, and how interesting that she's the one that often invites me to come in and speak. And every time I speak, and it's, I'd say probably a dozen times or so, she's always in tears. It's the same story I'm sharing, but she's always in tears because she just happens to remember me. And, and um, you know, the, the questions weren't asked. And this isn't at all to say it's anything to do with her, because again, we have to remember we're an entirely different generation we're talking about right now. We can't say from today's experience and try to put piece it back to then and say, well, it's it would have been obvious. It should have been obvious. The, the fact is it wasn't. And I, I know that if if I had experienced what I did today instead of 30 years ago, I know people would have been checking in. I know the resources would have been there. The signs would have been obvious, but we we weren't there as we are today. So hmm. nobody checked in. Um, I I also did everything I could to hide hide it. I was ashamed of of the tears. I was I didn't want people to see it, but I couldn't control it. I it's um, I couldn't speak when I was crying. I was like borderline hyperventilating. So there wasn't really anything I could do, even if, even if I wanted to. So if someone had checked in, I would not have shared what was going on. Um, I always wear more hoodies and, um, you know, my head in my sleeve as, as much as I can. And as far as school, school marks, I, I guess, and I, and I say this, you know, humorously, but that sometimes it's a coping mechanism is, I was terrible in school right from day one. So mm. nothing really stood out. I think if I had excelled in something, someone would have come for and been like, what is going on? Like, you know, me getting over 65% on anything or, or like in school would have been, um, would have been incredible. And, and um, I'm sure all of that had to do with the fact that, that it was my, my environment as growing up in and the struggles in my mind, but you know, somehow I was able to make it through and, and at least, you know, get my high school diploma. But yeah, it's, there, there were not people there for me uh, proactively coming to me. But as I look back now on my life, and I, I think offhand of the teachers that, that I know, and I knew then they loved me. I, I know they did. It's, um, I know that if I had approached them and said anything, they would have helped me. They would have put me under their wing. They, they would have done something. It's, I didn't give anyone a chance. I didn't even give myself a chance. So that's the longest way I can possibly tell you that um, mm. no, no one, no one knew. Yeah. It's, I only asked, I, I was reading a, a piece. I, I found like this old folder on, on my computer of some things I wrote in high school and when I was 16, 17, that's really when my depression uh, started to manifest itself and would progressively get worse. But I went back and read some of the writing I was doing. And I was like, yeah, Mike, there's something kind of was definitely off there. You can definitely tell the themes and stuff I was talking about that it was, no one really checked on me, but like you kind of said, and, and how we've created this whole conversation now, and yeah. people are coming forward and why, why it's so important. So you can recognize these signs and people are getting the tools and resources. Cause now I can look back and be like, Oh, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's, he's talking about some pretty dark stuff that that should be, are you okay? <laughs> and, and I think that's, 
that that's super important to, to speak of because basically you and I with this conversation we're kind of armchair quarterbacking our own lives and mm. and because we have time and we have experience and years and and uh, and knowledge we're able to look back and say but it should have been obvious and oh there was a there was a moment and but because it's our lived experiences we can also counter that and say yeah it 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 should have been obvious but I understand why it wasn't at the time um, I understand why somebody didn't pick up on that because it's you and I that hold the whole puzzle, you know, with all the pieces together. Whereas everyone that was in our lives at the time, they only knew a small piece of the puzzle. They didn't see the whole puzzle. They didn't see how we were going to turn out or how we were going to open up eventually with, with, with wisdom and, and age um, to start talking about these things. So, you know, it's, it's one thing it's, I mean, for years I've looked back on my life and and I've just gotten to a place that I do not hold anyone responsible for the way my my life went, other than those that were directly involved in the abuse and neglect I experienced. The, the teachers could not have done anything. It's it's um, I um, the the people in my life could not have done anything. And it's interesting because even being locked in a basement, I've I've had family members that have reached out to me over the years and and said, you know what, Ted, like we actually came over to your house. And we remember, you know, saying like, where's Tad? And the answer was always, he's in the basement. And it, I mean, like, I laugh about this now because it's like, that's how obvious it was. This wasn't a secret. No one was, no one was um, hiding me away and pretending I didn't exist. I was, I was right there. People were, were told, yeah, he's in the basement. But I guess it's kind of that mindset that, you know, that some um, young people, they're in the basement and it's a play area or it's a TV zone or it's uh, they just don't want to be around the adults when the visitors are here. I mean, there's so many things that go through our mind. And mm -hmm. and I guess, you know, when you hear he's in the basement, it doesn't go through your mind going, oh, my God, is he locked in that dungeon? Are you abusing him? That's not what goes through our minds. So um, there's a lot of people in my life, uh, especially previously, that really they had a piece of the puzzle but it didn't mean anything to them then. But now that they're learning about all these other pieces, it's like, oh my gosh, that should have been so obvious. And, and I can only say to them, no, like, don't, don't be upset with yourself. Don't get down on yourself. Don't reflect back thinking I should have, I could have, I, I would have, because it didn't happen. So to be upset isn't going to, it's not going to change it. What, what can change is again, talking about it. And that's like you said at the start, taking something so negative, and essentially trying my best to turn it into to a positive. I, I can't change what happened, but I can certainly embrace it, own it. Um, it's my lived experience. It's my story. And really, it's a part of the fabric that makes me the person I am today. And, and although I have work to do, and I forever will, I'm, I'm at, in a very good place with accepting who I am today. Mm -hmm. it, whether it's, you know, a breakup um, an ended friendship, losing your job, losing a loved one. We always want to go back and be like, how did I miss the signs? Where did it go wrong? I don't, you know, in the moment, how did I not see it? And when you look back in hindsight, you're like, how did I not? And it just makes perfect sense because being locked in the basement, you know, I have five young siblings who live home with my, my parents and that would just, that'd be totally normal. Oh, where's, where's so-and-so? Oh yeah. He's just in the basement. Oh, he's probably playing on his Xbox or whatever. Like yeah. you'd never make that connection. That's but right. I did, did want to ask. So someone like yourself who uh, 
I think back to, you know, hearing conversations about the worst thing you can do to somebody in prison is put them into isolation uh, because that human connection and social interaction is just so, so important. So obviously we're getting that through school, but you would have effects from this. Obviously now you're, you very, you know, like you're doing all these amazing things, you're high functioning. When you're making the transition between, like you said, starting your own life, 18, 19, 20, 21, that, that kind of age range. Did you have this trajectory? Did you immediately like start your life and be like, I know my plan. I know where I'm going. I'm motivated. Let's go. Or was there a lot of baggage that you had to kind of take with you and then really kind of work through to get to the spot where you are now? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I think that's the interesting piece to everything and and um and remind me later i want to get get back and it'll make sense in a moment i want to get back uh a little later in our conversation about about how we look at celebrities and people that we think from our perspective are living the perfect lives and how that almost plays a negative role for those of us looking up to those people um remind me on that because this kind of uh tips on that a bit that when I share my story and, and people think that, wow, like, look how successful he is. Everything is, is great. It's perfect. The thing is, they're only seeing a piece of the puzzle. They're only seeing me in that moment being courageous or vulnerable or brave or whatever other words you want to use with me standing up there sharing a story. But they don't know what happens when I go home at night or when, um, you know, what, the, what are the long-term effects of, of what happened to me and how does that play into my role today? So I want to talk about when I when I ran away and how did I build my life? And and no, I didn't have a, a trajectory. I I um I think the only thing future-wise that I ever held on to for me was wanting to be a police officer. That that is a thread in my life that has been there since five years old. It's to this very moment speaking with you today that um I have always, always wanted to grow up to be able to help people. And, and I know every police officer says that. I mean, basically every occupation, someone that, that is living their career dream, they always say since, since a young person. And, and I am yet that again. Um, for me, it's, it's the point that I think that's what, what was able to keep me strong enough to survive it because I always knew I'd be able to help people. I didn't know how or why or in what role or capacity. I just knew that I, I really wanted to, but I didn't take care of myself. And so when, when I ran away growing up in Ontario, there, there was a time that I was struggling with mental illness so bad, I kept thinking that the grass is greener on the other side, that I wasn't living the utopian world that I thought everybody was, that watching TV, everyone's happy. And the families that, that are shown on television are, you know, they all sit together and watch TV. It's just beautiful dinners. And, and, um, and I wasn't experiencing that. I was experiencing life more and more in my mind feeling alone and so there was one moment I remember um thank goodness addictions have never been something that that's played a role in my life it's uh knock on wood that stays that way it's um I think I'm I'm one of the first in my family as as far as men are concerned uh for many generations that that seems not to have an addiction to alcohol or any other substances for all that matters but there was a time in my life I was um, involved with alcohol a lot. And there was one particular day I remember waking up in Ontario and I would have been probably a, around 19, 20 years old. I had a, 
a terrible headache. Um, and it was freezing cold outside. And I remember walking to work to pick up a paycheck. And I remember coming home and walking back thinking, I don't want this anymore. My life is terrible. It's, it's, uh, it was cold. I wasn't feeling well. And then just everything seemed to be weighing, weighing on me. So I called my mom and I said, mom, I'm moving to Vancouver. And she, she was just like, what? And I said, yep, I'm, I can't do it. I'm moving to Vancouver. So I did. I got on a plane that afternoon, went to Vancouver with a bag in my hands, $25. And I, I said to the taxi driver at the Vancouver International Airport, take me $25 away from here. He took me to Burnaby, BC. There was a, a big mall. I got out with my bag and um, just started walking. And there was a, a place that had a sign, a house that had a sign in the window saying uh, basically like apartment for rent. I, I was fortunate enough that they allowed me to, to rent. I went to the back to the mall that afternoon, uh, got uh, applied for and, and got a credit card for, I think it was Eaton's at the time, got myself a TV on credit and, um, and, and thought the grass was greener. You know, I'm going to start my life over. I'm going to forget about the past and start, start over. But again, and, and it's only known to me as years went on, I wasn't addressing mental illness. I, I, I didn't even know what it was. I just knew that I wasn't feeling right. And um, make a long story short, at about 21, maybe 22 years old, there was one day, it was such a small thing that happened. But for me, it was, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. I, I had enough. A friend had lied to me. And, um, and I look at it now and I think, oh my gosh, like, I almost died um, because of something so small. But the fact was, is I hadn't dealt with anything for my entire life growing up that that lie was just, it was enough for me. Um, I, I attempted suicide that night. I, I didn't write any notes. I didn't make any phone calls. I truly wanted to die. I wanted it to end. I wanted the pain to go away. I wanted the confusion, the disarray in my mind, just, just to stop. And for me, it's... Um, it was an answer. It was a fix. And obviously I was unsuccessful. I woke up the next morning, felt absolutely terrible. And I was, I, I've never been so angry at myself to this day. I've never been that angry at myself. And, and I committed in that moment of thinking, this is the day I'm going to reach out. I'm going to speak up. And, uh, and I did, I started that, that was the start of my journey of wellness. So basically it wasn't 17 years old where I started building my life even though when you hear the story it sounds like that was it was actually when I was 21 22 and I started getting the mental health assistance mental illness assistance because I wasn't building my life at 17 I I had a different chapter but I wasn't building until I started to understand myself and and that took a long time I kept running it's uh, I ran for a long time I ran all over the world I ran from province to province city to city um, always by myself but um but I started to figure it out. I was in a better place, started to understand. And, and that is uh, kind of the trajectory it was. It was liftoff for me began the morning I woke up after trying to end it all. I share so many similarities to that story when I was 21, when I tried to take my own life as well. And it didn't seem like big deals, but the same thing, all these kind of pieces added up. And then I made that decision. Um, and then it was literally the day after once you kind of realize, okay, if I'm at that place, let's, there's obviously needs to be some help there. I, so as you're talking, I'm just like, I, I just, I, it takes me back to those feelings that I was experiencing as well at that exact same 
age and in talking about this path to wellness, because I, like we thought, like talking about starting that story when you're 17 and it really started when you're 21. I think a lot of other people need to realize who don't know the path to wellness is not linear. Um, and you mentioned you were jumping around, you were trying to do all these things. And, and if you're like me, if in any sense that you're doing so many of these different things, just trying to plug the hole, where, where can I find this, this fulfillment? What, where can I just find joy in, in certain things? What, so you mentioned some travel, what were some of these things along your, your path to wellness that you really tried to invest in and, and maybe found some success? Um, I, I think, I think the biggest one was I went overseas. So I, I went and lived in Edinburgh, Scotland for a couple of years. I, I went over there with a friend, someone that I was, uh, I mean, he was just a friend, except for me, I was madly in love with him, mm. but I didn't, I, I wasn't out at the time. Another piece of the puzzle, especially with mental illness that I, I wasn't addressing, but that I was handling somewhat all right. Um, and, and I guess I kind of just thought that this, uh, this love that I was feeling was mutual because we were doing everything together and, and, um, and hanging out and now traveling together. And, and I think when we were away and he, um, uh, sorry, my little girl wants to be a part of this apparently. <laughs> and, um, and we were in Edinburgh, Scotland. The plan was we were just going over there. It was his life dream to go over there. I had no interest in going whatsoever. But the option I had was either go with him, so he's still in my life, or he goes and I'm alone in mm. Vancouver. So I went with him. And it was the greatest thing I ever did, even though it was some of the most emotional highs and lows of roller coaster um, Im imaginable, because... Um, he wasn't gay. The, the mutual love wasn't there on the relationship avenue. The friendship avenue, it was there. I mean, I know he loved me. It just wasn't in, in the way that I, I, in the place I was at. He got a girlfriend that devastated me. Um, our friendship ended absolutely horribly. It's, uh, I'm sure we've all been in a spot where we've been in that relationship that you do things you, you regret, but you did it for a reason. And uh, I've never spoken to him again, never seen him again, but essentially he moved down to London to be with his girlfriend. I then had that choice. Do I stay in Edinburgh where I, where I only knew work colleagues at that point, or do I pack it all up, call it a day and move back to Canada? And I, I don't know where I found the strength, but I stayed there. I, I stayed in Edinburgh, Scotland, and that was the greatest thing I ever did because I was so out of my elements. It was an entirely different culture. It was different experience. Um, different language as far as, especially as far as accents. I, I was lost when it came to that. Um, but I felt it. Like I felt this is where, or that was where I belonged. So I stayed and it was great. I met lifelong friends that I still have to this day. I, I go back to Scotland. I do presentations mm -hmm. in Scotland. And um, yeah, I, I think that was, that was one of the biggest pieces for me was to, to experience life where you really have to find yourself because it's just you at the end of the day. Like no one's putting a meal in front of you. No one is, is, um, you know, forcing you to do anything. No one's making you be home at any given time of day. You do whatever you want. And, um, and I grew up, I, 
I, I really did in those experiences. And, and I still look back as some of the, the fondest memories I have of my life were those two and a half, almost three years being overseas in, in uh, the UK. I, I do want to touch a little bit on, on, you know, your, your sexuality and stuff, because I know that adds a whole other element. Um, my brother, uh, who's the first episode of this podcast, actually, um, we, we talked about him being gay and him coming out and that, that whole process and what that was like mentally, because we're from a, even though we, it was a more accepting age for that sure. to come out and our family was, there was no issues, but we were from a small town, which really put up some barriers for him. So obviously you said you, you were closeted for quite some time. What were, how hard was that on you mentally? And then was there a much, was there a really large benefit to you mentally and on this, this journey for you when you were able to finally come out and live your authentic self? Yes. Um, this is something that I always struggle to this day to, to explain because unless you've ever been in a situation like that, I don't think anyone is truly going to understand. And you know, as we spoke about mental illness and as we spoke about bullying, um, we're in a much better place nowadays. And the same can be said about being your your genuine, your real self, especially when it comes to LG, LGBTQ and, and sexuality and, and coming out as, as who you are. And, you know, I, I look back and I think back to high school and all the time that I knew I was gay. I didn't know what it was, but I knew I was looking the opposite direction of, of every other guy that I saw at school. I wasn't finding the, the females attractive or like attractive in that way. Um, I, I was looking at other guys. I didn't understand it because in my time at school, we didn't have gay characters on TV. We didn't have gay books in a school. We didn't have a GSA in, in, you know, in schools either. Um, if you heard the word gay, it was always in such a derogatory way. It wasn't, um, it wasn't an environment to come out and taking everything away from my experiences. If we just focus on the sexuality piece, it was, I honestly believed I was the only person that was doing what I was doing as far as looking. It wasn't until I was 25 did I actually accept the word gay and that I am gay. Um, I, I thought I was the only one. And then as time went on, it was when I was in Edinburgh that, that one night I thought, you know what, I've got to go and figure myself out. I, I have to go and see like what is it that's going through my mind? Why? And of course, I was in a much better place emotionally and psychologically, but I hadn't figured out the, the gay aspect of it. So one night I, I snuck out from a bunch of friends and I forget what I told them, but I, I basically thought I was just going to sneak out. And, and I went to, in Edinburgh, Scotland, there, there was, a, I think it's still there, a, a nightclub called CC Blooms. I, I got in line and I remember standing there. It's, it was a gay club. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like, what am I doing here? But I had to do it. I, I had to do it. And I knew that that was where I meant I was meant to be at that time. And as the lineup got shorter and shorter, it got right to the front door and the doormen were there saying, um, you know, I'm sorry, you, you can't come in. And I remember being so deflated thinking, I, like, what do you mean I can't come in? And I don't know the words I said, but I remember them saying, you can't come in because this is a gay club. And, and that was the first time I had to say, I'm gay. And they looked at me and, and because I'm standing there by myself, probably not exhibiting um, external uh, factors of, of I, I always find challenges on the words, but 
of showing I'm gay because I, I'm probably petrified in this moment and I'm not comfortable with who I am in that moment. And, the, and I said, I am gay. And the one doorman looked to the other and said, and then looked back at me and said, well, then prove it, kiss him and pointed to the, to the other doorman. And I remember that was, that was kind of the moment of thinking, oh my gosh, I best be on the right path now because I'm being forced, not only to, not forced. I was in a, a place of reckoning to, to either say it and show it or walk away and continue to hold it in. I, I gave the doorman a peck, they let me in. I, I grabbed a beer at the bar, kept my head down the whole time, but to get to the kind of the standing area, you had to walk through the dance floor. And as I walked through the dance floor, as I was in the middle of the, of the bar, of, of the dance floor, head, had, head held down, it's uh, a song by Stars on 54 came on the, the, the system called If You Could Read My Mind. And it was a song that I just loved. And I remember in that moment just thinking, oh my gosh, I love this song. And I kind of paused and everyone's dancing. And I remember looking around thinking, oh my gosh, everybody here is the same as me. And that was my moment. It's, uh, I accepted who I was. I still hadn't, hadn't said it to anybody, but I accepted who I was. And I knew from that moment on, I was going to live my genuine real self. And that was just one heck of a night. I, I did so many firsts, so many huge firsts for me. Um, even though I wasn't really in the right conditions to do it, that's not the way someone should have to come out. But um, but it worked for me. It, it was uh, really a, a moment that was that was great, and that was my my start. But I, in order to share with others, I had to hit rock bottom, and I did. I, I was totally prepared for everybody to say, "I don't want to be your friend." I sorry, you can't work here anymore. I'm I you know what you're uh, to my mom that she would be like, "Sorry." don't talk to us anymore. So I came out over the phone. I was totally ready for to start over again, essentially. And my mom just said to me over the phone, she says, I know. And I remember being so angry thinking, no, you can't know. I've been working so hard to hold this in for 25 years. And you're saying just nonchalant, like, I know. And um, I was just like flabbergasted and no problems from there on coming out. I, it's, and you know, living the LGBT uh, uh, Q community and and being gay is I'm forever coming out every day. I'm coming out, and it's not because I want to come out. It's because I have to come out. But on the flip side, everybody comes out every day. Um, if I go to my workplace right now and ask ask the team like, "What'd you do last night?" Quite often, the answers are you like, "Oh, my wife and I watched a movie," or you know, "So and so and I went out to dinner." they just came out. It's, they came out and told me that they're straight, even though that's just regular right. lingo. Um, I can't just say that. I can't just say, oh, my husband, not that I have one, but my husband and I had dinner last night or my boyfriend or I, you know, went out. I have to put the caveat in there first and say, oh, just so you know, I'm gay. So last night I hung out with, with uh, David, you know, it's, I kind of need to do that extra step, but everyone comes out every day. It's, it's just one uh, for, for uh, heterosexuals, it's normal. They're just assumed to be that way anyways, and they can mm -hmm. just use their own language of description. For homosexuals, you have to kind of put the caveat in, and then you can talk like everybody else. Right. What a, what a story. That is... 
I did something. Holy moly. I, I don't get to share that very often because like I said, it's it's the words, right? It's yeah. um in in your typical interview, like you and I were saying before, it's um you have three, five minutes at most. I, I can't share that story. Um most of the interviews aren't about how I came out or it doesn't even come up. So mm -hmm. I don't get to share. It. And when I write about it, and like I wrote about it in my book, it doesn't encapsulate everything the way that you and I having a conversation right now does. So it kind of brings joy to my heart to think back and, and actually reflect on that moment of being in CC Blooms and, and walking through the club and hearing that song and thinking, I did it. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun story. It was very difficult at the time. Yeah. But it's super, super fun. And I'm glad it happened. Just the, the moment gave me chills where it's like out of like a story or out of a movie where like, like you said, you're at that point where it's like, I either go back and repress myself yeah. or I, I admit it for the first time outwardly. And there's like, just hearing you say that, I was like, I got some chills on that. I was like, wow, that is what a profound kind of moment. So thank you for it sharing was, that. That yeah. was, it was something. Um, so much to get to, so little time. But I did want to touch back because it goes back to bringing back up the celebrities. Yes. You did bring up rep representation. There was nothing on TV or the media. And doing this podcast and speaking to the LGBT community, speaking to Black people, uh, Indigenous, I have learned so much about how important representation is. And not only for race or sexuality or you know, neurodiversity, but goes right back to our conversation on mental illness and bullying on just having people in the media talking about the media, TV, pop culture, celebrities, about all these different aspects of life and knowing that no, even at a, some big celebrity, Brad Pitt, even he was bullied in high school. I don't know if he actually was, but you know what I mean? Like just to hear that out loud from someone that you look up to and admire that you think is perfect. What a profound, that just had, brings so much meaning to so many people to hear someone speak like that. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree. And this is what the message overall, I try always like, like I'm always asked, what's, what's the message you want to convey to people? And, and if, if it's a single word, it's communication, it's always communication. And, and when it comes to every topic we've discussed today, everything that we've discussed is about communication and, and holding things in or lack thereof of communication. But for me, I think one of the biggest ways to overcome some of the biggest challenges we have in society today is if more people would speak up, we would recognize that life isn't perfect. It isn't perfect for anybody. And, and the reason why I wanted to go back to this conversation is because you and I were speaking about celebrities or politicians or sports people and all these people, mm -hmm. we just, we kind of put them on a pedestal thing and they've got the money, the fame, the, you know, the, the people that they're sexually interested in, like just clamoring all over them. It's, it's beautiful. But, but the fact is that they have their, their own issues and, and we can, we can bring all this back to children in their families, they look at their parents as being the celebrity, or their grandparents, their aunts and uncles. They, they think like, wow, like they've got the perfect life. They've got the family, the white picket fence, the green manicured lawn. They, they have dinner on the table every night. They've got the full-time job. They have the holidays. We all gather together by the fireplace and, and open gifts. That is the, the utopian world of perfection. But the fact is, that's okay that kids think that, but it's not, a, it's not reality. 
our parents didn't get to that point of having the utopian Christmas dinner around the table with all our family without a whole lot of bumps and ups and downs and roller coasters and, and mental health challenges and bullying and assaults and all these other issues that, that we go through. Um, they didn't go from being a school, a child in school to being this loving, devoted parents having the utopian world. They had bumps in the road, but as, as adults, we find it so difficult to talk about that. If, if adults would only take a moment back and say, you know what, just so you know, when I was in school, this is what I went through. Or, you know, when I was um, trying to buy this home, I actually had to claim bankruptcy and I felt rock bottom and I had to see a counselor or I had to do these things. I, I was turned down. I was assaulted. I, whatever it was, these roadblocks, these bumps in our lives, we need to start sharing those with youth so that they know that when a moment comes in their life, a bump in the road for, for really simplistic terms, they recognize that that is perfectly normal. It is perfectly normal to have days where we feel alone, that we feel down, that we feel sad. It is perfectly normal um, to experience negative, negative things and situations in our lives. It is perfectly normal um, to need to reach out and, and to have that shoulder to cry on every now and again, or the support to reach out and lift us back up again. It's perfectly normal. But because we don't talk about it on mass and we don't talk about it in a personal way, as in a personal connection to that individual, they feel that when they hit that moment to this day, they feel like they are the only person in the world that has experienced it. So we don't only need celebrities and sports figures to, to start speaking up and, and utilizing these hashtag days or pink shirt days or special days out of the year. We need it to come right down to the families, the, the, the individuals in a, in a child's life to talk about the challenges we face. So that when the, challenge, when the challenge is faced by the child, they recognize that there are people all around that know because they've gone through it. it that is so true. And I think back just to my own relationship with my parents, which has always been very open, but it wasn't until I was much older to I heard the stories and get their actual thoughts on the stuff that they went through and the traumatic events that happened and the hard work and, you know, all the trials and tribulations of, of being a human. Right. And it's so true that you don't think of your parents that way, especially as a child, uh, that your parents are, you know, your, your mom's not a woman who desires things. Your, your dad's not a right. man who struggles, right? Like you, you totally, what you said uh, of this, I, this, idealization we have of our parents yeah. we totally forget that they're they're actually human and that, that's just a, at those moments yeah it, um it's yeah and and to to be in a position of sharing a voice if we're only sharing the voice as a reactive measure instead of a proactive measure we're always going to sound as though we're only saying it because we have to say it if we're to be proactive then say it because there's nothing to be ashamed of. It's a part of the it's a part of the fabric that makes you the person you are today. And for me, that's something I'm I'm proud of. I, I'm proud of the experiences I went through. That doesn't mean I condone them. I'm proud of them. I own them, and um, and I work through them. And I'm also very open with the fact, as I know you are, just based on on the podcast and our discussion that that I still speak about mental illness. I still reach out to, to a counselor every, mm -hmm. every week, actually. I have a, a psychiatrist that I, that I talk to. I love it. I take a little white pill every morning that just helps balance my moods. I'm very proud of that because it, to me, that's not a weakness to take a pill. 
that pill represents courage and strength because that means I have reached out and gotten the help and a part of the, the help and support is that little white pill. That to me screams success. It's, it's positive. I've, I've done what I needed to do a very long time ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's so important. And especially as, as men to, to be sharing that because so many young people, we're, we're still under the, the, you know, facade of, of men not being able to be sharing emotion and, and you know, crying right. or, or being sad as a weakness right. that, that we share these, you know, I'm, I, I take two pills. So there you go. <laughs> and yesterday I actually forgot and I put out this big long thread about what it was like forgetting about to take my medication and going through withdrawal. Yeah. Anyways, side yes. yeah. I did want to leave people before I let you go uh, with some, with some takeaways about bullying. Cause obviously that's like this whole, this whole project and, and what you do, you have a, an absolutely great website. Um, lots of resources there that I was looking through. So people can check that out. But I think a lot of us struggle when, when someone has a bully or, or, you know, whether you're a teacher or a parent and your kid's getting bullied, we always kind of struggle on knowing what the best course of action is, because on one hand, you know, you, you want your child or, or to stop being assaulted or harassed. But on the other end, you also know that child who's doing the bullying is probably going through something, you know, and just a very, if there even is one, a generic way, like what are some like easy kind of first steps maybe parents can do or, or adults can do to kind of like try to address a, a situation where bullying is occurring and, and make things better? Well, it's, it's a long one. It's not easy because it's just like mental illness. It's, it's, there isn't an easy fix to this. And I think the first way to start resolving issues surrounding bullying is we need to understand what bullying is. And, and so bullying, it's a behavior. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident. It's not a, uh, it's not a rite of passage. It's not kids being kids. Bullying is very, very clearly defined. So to be very clear to, to your audience, bullying must have three things it must have repetition means it happens over and over and over again Um, it must have the intent the intent being to shame harm embarrass the uh the target the victim um and and lastly it, it has to have a uh imbalance of power whether it's actual or or perceived it doesn't matter but if the victim feels as though the bully it has more power than them, then, then that's, in, uh, th- that's a real um, imbalance of power. So it must always have those three things. So with that in mind, the reason why it's important to have the definition of what bullying is, is because if it is a one-off or if it is this week I make fun of you, the next week you make fun of me, then it's not bullying. It's not a behavior. Those can be fixed. They, they can be fixed in, in different ways. Sometimes it's just sit down, talk about it, address it, bring the two parties together we can move on. When it comes to bullying, we got to take an entirely different approach because this is a behavior and behaviors are not going to be changed overnight. You can't just sit down with someone and say, stop doing it. And bullying is done. That's not the way this works. This is a daily routine now for that child. Something is going on in their life as a bully that they too need help. They, they need outreach. Something is going on because the basis of humanity tells us that causing pain and harming someone else is wrong. That, that's that's the one of the biggest foundations of being a human being. We know it's wrong. We don't need society to tell us 
We don't need parents to tell us. We know it's wrong. So if your child is still going and causing harm to others, we need to find out what's going on in their life to, to remedy that. So we need to involve many others. We, we need to involve schools if need be. There's only so much a school can do. The school has your, your child for five, six hours a day. As a parent, you've got your child for, you know, the rest of the day and weekends and holidays and, and everything else. So, so a school can only do so much. A parent to, to child ratio is what, two to one, maybe two to two, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. A teacher to, to child ratio is 35 to one. So you can see where I'm going with this. The parents, in my opinion, have the biggest role to play. Um, you need to monitor your child. You need to know what they're doing, not just by watching them, but also monitoring what they're doing on the internet. At such a young age, we're allowing kids to have full reign of the internet. And, and that's okay, because the internet is a very good place. It's, 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 there's a lot of positive that goes on. But the fact of the matter is that kids are accessing things that are age inappropriate and they don't have the understanding of what they're watching. So let's not kid ourselves. Kids at a young age are watching pornography. They believe that what they're seeing is love. They think that is how you make love to someone that you, you care for, that, that you love. They don't have any understanding. They don't have a foundation. They don't have any background on it. So they think it's okay to go around and slap um, somebody's backside to grab breasts. They think it's okay because that's what they're seeing until they have the context of what they're seeing of saying, no, that is just the same as watching an, an action movie. It is just television. Um, the same can be said about, about what they're, they're talking about online the sites they're searching, the research they're doing when they hear something. You know, if you want to believe the world's flat, you can find sites that will validate your thoughts and, and, and beliefs. Um, we need parents, parental oversight. You're not invading privacy. You're being a parent. You're educating, you're monitoring, you're watching. And if you do these things, just randomly, you know, review what your child is, is doing and seeing and, and, and searching on the website, you're going to, on the internet rather, you're going to see and learn a lot about your child. You're gonna see how they're being interacted with. You're going to see how they're interacting with others. You're gonna see the photos they've sent and received. You're gonna see the sites they're watching. And, and that's when you can start to, to really build on, on uh, uh, education. And we're going to be able to catch bullying before it can be called bullying because we're going to catch it when it's not repetitious. Mm -hmm. We're going to catch it when it was rude or inappropriate or cruel or mean behavior. You're going to look at them and be like, why did somebody just send that to you? And you can address it. You can deal with it. Um, you're going to see what, what apps your child has on the phone. Chances are you're not going to have any idea what these are, but that's where as an adult, you do your background, you do your research. Um, and, and I think that's when we're going to start having a lot healthier of children. And, and I know it's not easy, especially if you're going to start today and you've got a 12 year old, you know, child and you want to go grab their phone and search through, you're going to have a battle on your hands, mm. but that's where we got to take the step back and recognize we're the adults. We're not doing it to invade privacy. We're not doing it to be mean or cruel. We're not doing it to find bad things. We're doing it to make sure our children are safe and, and then trust yeah. is earned over time. And I think that that's the biggest piece. Mm -hmm. Before I let you go, I did want to touch on one more thing because we speak about bullying so much as if it's children uh, and kids. And I don't think that's the case because I think adults can bully too. I've dealt with workplace bullies. I, you just log on to Facebook or Twitter for two seconds and you'll find bullies. You know where it comes from. Do you, does your program also deal, like have resources or deal a little bit with, with, adult bullying, uh, because that, that 
you know, it's one thing to police or, or not police or children, but just kind of like guide them and show them the works. But once you're an adult, it's really hard to, to start changing behavior. Is right. that something that you also work with in, in this program? Well, I think in a loose way I do because the, the behaviors are the same. The things to look for are the same, the, um, you know, what the adults are doing. And like you said, I mean, especially during election time, you see this massive spike of what people are saying. And I, I, I mean, as a police officer and as a fellow human being, I often try to put myself in someone else's shoes to, to think, I wonder why they would do that, why they would say that. And and it, I, I'm mystified. I, I, I'm so challenged. I can't put myself in their spot. I can't imagine sharing something that you know as a grown adult is flat out wrong. It's a lie. It's false. Why? Why would you share that? I, I'm never going to understand that. But um, I think in a way, though, my charity, my program, Bullying Ends Here, it's, it's, um, it's not really an educational piece as far as information on bullying per se it's almost taking a different approach through real lived experiences so my presentation which is the foundation to the charity overall is exactly what you and i have done today it's going through my life in the order it was i then you know pull out my badge and i show you that you know what i achieved my dream not because of other people i achieved it because of me i gave myself a chance i believed in myself i i tried and then I speak of Jamie's story as though he's still with us right up to the point where Jamie's mom opens the door. And that's the evening she discovered that her boy had died by way of suicide. And, um, and what I'm doing is I'm putting, I'm putting real lived experiences in the minds of the young people as they're listening for an hour long on these stories. There's no visual aids. There, there's nothing there for them except their minds and imagination. So they're picturing you know who Jamie is. Jamie is themselves. Jamie is their buddy. Jamie is the kid in the hall. They stepped over and kept on going with their dates. They thought that isn't my problem. That is that person's problem. They'll take care of their own. I, I'm not getting involved. But through the the communication and the lived experiences piece, we're, we're, I'm showing young people the importance of speaking up, of reaching out, whether you're the victim, whether you're the the bystander. And I think one of the most interesting things, Ryan, is is over the the price 75,000 emails and, and social media messages I've gotten over the, the last five years is um, I've received hundreds and hundreds and hundreds from bullies, like self-proclaimed, I am a bully. I know what I'm doing. I don't know how to stop because mm. I am made to feel good targeting other people by my peers. The people around me are kind of like, they laugh when I do it. They they pat me on the back. They congratulate me. They make me feel good because I just hurt and harmed somebody. And it has, it has put me in a position over the last eight years to have to do a lot of research to understand these things. And, and that, that's why I can speak about the behaviors part, because the behaviors are there. And these kids don't know how to get out of the be behaviors and still be cool and accepted with their, their, their peers you know, in their, their little social circles. And I find that fascinating. And it makes sense. Not again, not to condone their behaviors. It makes sense why they're confused and they don't know how to stop. So that that's where we work on it. Right. That's a yeah, very interesting uh, point right there. Yep. Um, this, this was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, you mentioned a book. I know you have a great sweater on for those who are listening. Um, 
what are some of the, uh, where can people get in touch with you, learn more, get, get some of uh, this, this, you know, the book, the sweater, uh, where can they find all that? Um, well, I wear pink every day that I'm not in a uniform because I think <laughs> shirt day should be every day. Hmm. Um, and I, quite frankly, I just love pink. So, so for those of, uh, of, of that are listening and not watching, I, I'm wearing a pink hoodie. Um, uh, as far as all the information about myself, more on the on the journey, the books, the 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 shop, as far as clothing and and everything is concerned, it's it's uh, bullyingendshere.ca. Um, a lot of my social media handles are just my name, Tad Milmine. Um, I, I think it really is interesting because everything that you and I have spoken about, everything I do is encapsulated on that website. And that, that's why I do it. So there is that one point. So the presentation is on there for rents, especially because now we're in a virtual world that I can't go and do the presentation. And, and I guess the final piece is just that every dollar that comes into the charity goes to the charity, even though this is, uh, you know, takes a lot of time to do it. It's my passion. It's that fire that you and I very first topic we spoke about the fire and the passion is, uh, is important to me. Nobody, a part of this charity gets paid any money. We don't want money. We, we want to do what's right by society. So it's totally volunteer driven, including myself and uh, every dollar goes to the charity. So we can continue to do the outreach and, and help those that, that need it most. Awesome. Well, that's good. So listening, watching, go donate, uh, get a sweater, all those things, because I think it's so, I'm, I'm so happy that there are people like you and others I've met on this podcast and who I haven't met, who are able to use these experiences that could really break you and turn it. Like I said, I think I said this right off the top, turn it into this amazing thing that helps so many people. So, I mean, congratulations and, and keep up that amazing work. Well, thanks for help facilitating my voice because my voice would just be that I'd be sitting here by myself sharing it. If it weren't for individuals like you providing the outlet, um, like everything I do is all teamwork. And Brian, you're a part of that team because you're helping get, get the words out. So I absolutely applaud you with, you know, your, your initiative to, to raise awareness with voices and programs and, and mental wellness and illness. And yeah, I can't thank you enough for, for helping, you know, continuing the conversation and um, thanks for having me on. I I really, really appreciate it. Thanks to all those that are listening and, and being a part of this as well. Yeah. And let's all keep the conversation going because it doesn't stop here. And like you said, these things need to be talked about every single day, not just that one hashtag day or, you know, pink shirt day. So this is great. Thank you. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Take care. take the red pill you stay in wonderland and i show you how deep the rabbit hole goes